Good morning, good evening, good afternoon. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the .NET on AWS show. I'm your host, Brandon Minnick, and with me, as always, is the amazing Francois. Francois, how you doing? How's your week? I'm fine. I'm really fine. Um, hello, Brandon. Hey, it is sunny there, really sunny in France, um, but I, I, I have the chance to be in the temperate zone because it's really hot in Europe right now. I've heard it's really hot in the U- United States too, yes. so... <laughs> Oh goodness! Yeah, uh, this weekend was one of those weekends. I'm in I'm in Northern California in Napa, and it was in the 90s. And well, what's that? Uh, 25 Celsius, <laughs> somewhere between 25 mm-hmm. and 30. So it's it's warm. Um, but yeah, there's places uh, in the southern U.S., especially out in like the desert regions, Arizona, Phoenix. Uh, it's like 120, uh, which is Oh gosh, yeah. we're, we're pushing like 50 Celsius <laughs> and like there's people going. This is how crazy it is and how crazy yeah, people I, are. Death Valley. I, yeah, I've heard that Death Valley was expecting to hit the record. Like 55 uh, and people are going there. People are going there <laughs> to just experience the hottest ever temperature recorded on Earth. Uh I'm like, no, I'm good. <laughs> like my AC could ba- barely keep up here. And it's way less hot. <laughs> oh, goodness. So back to back to the announcements. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we've got a we got an awesome show today with an awesome guest. Uh, but but yeah, first want to share a couple of things that we're working on. Uh, I have been recording some some videos for our Uh, Amazing team. We've got this awesome, awesome tool called the AWS Toolkit that for some reason seems to be one of the best kept secrets in the AWS community because not enough people are using it. Uh, We've, Francois and I have been chatting with the the product manager for the AWS Toolkit. And I guess first I should explain what it is. It's a plugin for Visual Studio, Visual Studio Code, JetBrains, and it basically allows you to do everything from the IDE um, for AWS. So if you are wanting to create a Lambda function, you can use the AWS toolkit extension in say Visual Studio. It'll give you templates for whatever Lambda you want to create, whether that's S3 or maybe, maybe working on something with Kinesis. And then from your IDE, Visual Studio, Visual Studio Code, JetBrains, you can just right click on your code and say, publish to Lambda. So you never have to leave your code, you never have to leave your IDE. And yeah, for some reason, not enough people are using it. Uh, we're, we're actually seeing um, much fewer users of this amazing toolkit that makes our lives easier <laughs> as developers yep. uh, than we are seeing the uptick of .NET developers on AWS. So yeah, working with that team to create some videos. Stay tuned for those. I just recorded my first one last week. We're working on getting it approved and published, but if you're not using it yet, folks, the AWS Toolkit is incredible. You should try. You should definitely try. You are missing something. Yeah. How about you, Francois? What, what announcements do you have today for the folks? Um, my announcement is about the .NET Enterprise Developer Day. Uh, we are hosting next month uh, in August, uh, tw- on August uh, 22. Um, so we co-host this event with the Developer Week CloudX event um, 
hosted by Dev Networks. So it's a free one-day virtual conference all about .NET and AWS. You will get two tracks. One track is about migration and modernization of .NET applications uh, on AWS. And the second track is about um, .NET developer productivity and um, cloud native application. So you will learn about the toolkit. For example, we, we will have session about the toolkit. We will have a session about Code Whisperer, our new AI coding companion. Uh, and you will learn about serverless computing on AWS and how you can take best of, um, of those uh, computing services to build your .NET application. We will also have some uh, guests. Uh, two guests from AWS community who will share with us their journey uh, uh, with .NET and AWS. Uh, we will have also um, uh, a guest from JetBrain, a discussing writer, and we will have also the guest we uh, we have today sharing with, uh, with us her um, experience. So. Uh, I, I think it's time to introduce our guest because uh, she will uh, deliver an amazing talk at the .NET Enterprise Developer Day. Um, I can't stress um, enough, or oh, I recommend to attend this talk. Fantastic. And and by the way, great job. Uh, Francois is actually the one putting all of this together. Uh, you're, you're doing a great job. I, I, didn't even, I didn't even know that you recruited so many folks. We have two tracks now. So. Way to, way to go, man. But yeah, we have, we have an amazing, amazing guest today. Um, she's a software engineer and a solution architect with over 15 years of experience in the .NET community. She's a Microsoft Azure MVP. She's a frequent speaker at conferences around the world. So without further ado, Layla, welcome Yay! to the show. <laughs> Thank you. It's so Hello. cool to be here. Yeah. It's thanks so much for joining us. Uh, so. Layla, for folks who haven't met you yet, who are you and what do you do? Well, one second. I need to say thank you to Francois for the very kind words. I appreciate that. Um, I um, No pressure, by the way, <laughs> but I will, <laughs> do, I will try to do my absolute best to, to deliver a great session at the conference. So looking forward to that. Um, Uh, so yeah, my name is Laila, uh, Laila Bugria. I'm based in Belgium. I've been a software engineer for many, many years at this point. I don't feel comfortable sharing how many. Let's just leave that for another day. Um, <laughs> but no, I've, I've uh, always really been passionate about this job, about coding, about how to code. Um, and yeah, I, I feel like I'm still enjoying it as much as the first days. I mean, You know, to be totally fair, it's been like in waves as with everything. But yeah, still very much enjoying that. Right. Some some days we hate it. Some days we love it. Some days nothing works. Some days we're that's, the uh, smartest developer in the planet. That's how we roll. <laughs> uh, it's so great. We see uh, Martin, our guest uh, from the last shows in the comments. Good to see you again, Martin. He says that Layla's also just an all-around awesome human and... I couldn't Thank agree you. More. <laughs> so kind. And he is too. So if you get to catch a talk uh, of his, then definitely go watch that. Absolutely. So, so Layla, let's, uh, let's, let's zoom all the way back. Uh, you mentioned you've been doing this for a long time. Um, how, how did you get into .NET? How did you get into C Sharp? That's actually kind of a, I don't know if a funny story, but it is for me because I sort of 
you know, you listen to other people share their own backstory. And it's like, I was coding since I was eight. And I'm, I'm kind of jealous of that in the sense that, wow, you figured out what you would love to do for the rest of your life at that age. Like, really? <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I, ca I cannot say that that was my case. I thought I wanted to be a teacher, which I guess in some ways I am. If you sort of look at speak, public speaking, and it's also sort of form of teaching, I guess we could say. Uh, but yeah, I thought I wanted to be a teacher. Uh, that's what I was going to do. And then I remember that we had a class. It was called IT, <laughs> whatever that means, because what we were basically doing is mostly learning how to type, how to use Excel and Word and access at the time. Imagine access. And I remember we had, I don't know, like four weeks of a sort of class, one hour, in which you sort of had to program a little car to move from point A to B without hitting the cones along the way. And I guess I was good at it. <laughs> My teacher caught it and he was like, you should be a software engineer. And I was like, uh, what now? <laughs> but yeah, that's sort of how I got into it. I was like, let's give it a try. And the rest is history. No way. Oh, that's incredible. That's and and I don't know what the what it's like for students nowadays. I've I've been out of school for a long time myself <laughs> as well. Uh, but um, but yeah, I, I've always said I, I strongly believe everybody should learn, we'll say to program, not even to code. So even something like that where you're programming a car to drive through a maze, um, because it it kind of changes the way you see the world, the way you think, and especially nowadays with everything runs on computers. <laughs> and so to understand, yeah, how a computer thinks and computer solves that uh, is, is super, super important. So, so this teacher noticed you, you had a knack for it. Um, where'd, where'd you go from there? Was C sharp your first language? Well, actually, no, because my, my education was very, very, very Java focused. It was, I mean, we, we did have some.net was VB.net at the time, um, which mm. I also, I mean, <laughs> I, I'm going to be quoted on this, but I did not hate it at the time. Okay. So, <laughs> but I did not hate it at the time. Uh, but then we had a, we had to do an internship as part of the education and that was C sharp. I had never written a letter of C sharp, just sort of thrown into this. And I was like, this is awesome. I never want to do anything else. Well, it's not entirely true, but you know, I, I just sort of fell in love with the language and the entire ecosystem. And yeah, it's been more than 15 years. So, <laughs> and what do you love in in this ecosystem? Probably the the thing you love the most, besides well, VB.net, of course. <laughs> this was bound to happen. <laughs> <laughs> You'll get me that T-shirt, though, Martin. <laughs> um, no, I get. I guess one of the things that I appreciate most, and that's been, I mean, it's always sort of been there, but very, very pre prevalent the last few years is a community. I feel that um, we're exposed to like, <laughs> honestly, a fire hose of frameworks, technologies and options. And like, there's so much out there. And I feel like having a, a community in which, you know, we can sort of embrace that it's impossible to know everything. And, and that it's always, you can always find an open space somewhere where you can come in and say, I don't know how this works. Can someone please figure this out? you know, with me and sort of being able to do that in a sort of community and learn together. I feel that's one of the things that I appreciate most. I feel it also, yeah, it keeps us young in many ways, right? This job just forces us to keep on sort of 
studying and expanding ourselves, how we think and, and, and how we absorb information, which is just accelerating. So in that regards, I feel that the community and also the work that, that you guys are doing as well is also helping a lot in that regard. So thank you as well. Oh, thank you. Far too kind. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I feel the same way. It's this this job, this career as developers, even outside of the .NET world is, yeah, it's something where if you stop learning, you're going to fall behind. And it's it's tough because <laughs> you you can get by for a couple of years uh, what, on what you know today if we were just to encapsulize 2023 knowledge and we're not learning anything new. Yeah, we could probably still have a job for another five years, probably 10 years. We could keep working on the same stack. But yeah, eventually you get left behind. <laughs> and and how do you keep up? Um, and for me, it's, yeah, uh, leaning on folks in the community. Like you said, folks who have done it first, written the blog posts, make, made the videos, uh, tweeted about it, open source projects. And yeah, we, we have to, <laughs> we have to lean on each other. Uh, otherwise, I don't, I don't know how we'd survive. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I, I will say though that I think, because I've gone through this throughout my career where I felt like I was paused for a second for many personal reasons, but I remember like getting back into it and it was, it was brutal. <laughs> it was brutal, but I also got through it more quickly than I had expected. Um, I was basically working on a project um, for quite a few years, super interesting project, actually one of the, uh, one of the ones that I'm most proud of, even in the sense of what we accomplished and what we put together there. But um, I think Technology-wise, I wasn't really exposed to much. It was there was no learning on the job. Basically, my my work was C sharp, like <laughs> C sharp unit tests, and that was really it. You weren't exposed to a lot. So okay, some SQL queries and stuff like that. But let's say like all of the different you know frameworks, technologies that we're usually exposed to as a full stack developer, that there wasn't much of that. So I felt like oof, this was five years. So okay, this is going to be rough. <laughs> And it was, <laughs> it was so, but, but I would still sort of want to share that if anyone finds themselves in that situation is don't be afraid of putting yourself out there again, because it's absolutely possible for you to sort of relearn and, and sort of um, catch up with that um, backlog, if you will, of technologies. There's also no need to learn everything. You're going to have to sort of understand of what's out there sort of be available like a 360 know know what's available out there and then again make some choices on what is going to be most applicable to the systems that you're developing and things like that so definitely something i also want to share because this i feel that this is something that can scare a lot of people off as well yeah and and even in the comments we have a comment slash question here that uh dovetails nicely with that where it's uh as as .NET developers, what is your experience with people who have uh, changed careers into AWS developers, either as .NET or Python? Um, as someone who's trying to do a career switch, it, fe it feels a bit overwhelming. Uh, and I'll I'll start. I'll say I I absolutely agree. It's definitely overwhelming. Uh, I've been doing C sharp development for, gosh, 
over mm-hmm. 10 years exclusively now. Like I haven't left the C-sharp world and I still feel overwhelmed. And <laughs> it's it's what I do every day. It's what I speak about at conferences. We we host this show on Twitch to talk about .NET and AWS. And it's, it's still overwhelming. Um, so unfortunately, that feeling will never go away. <laughs> You'll always feel behind. You'll always feel like you don't know everything. Um, but that's okay because none of us do. Uh, if anybody tells you that they they do know it all and they're they an expert. Yeah, they don't. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, uh, Francois, what do you think? As uh, someone who's looking to switch careers and get into um, developing for the cloud, either .NET or Python, how, how would you go about that? What advice would you give? Um, first of all, uh, do it. Uh, j- just to share my my. my 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 personal background. Um, I've been a C sharp developer for nineteen years. Um, let's say six or seven years ago, I started to build .NET application for the cloud. It was on Azure. Let's we we are on AWS stream, but it was on Azure. I started on Azure, and um, it was all new. So by the way, we we had to learn. It was all new and. Three or four years, four years later, I decided to switch to AWS because I was afraid to. I was, oh my god, I, I'm fifty. Now it's fifteen years. I'm in the Microsoft uh, ecosystem, and I was afraid for my own career. I still need to work probably thirty years or thirty-five years to reach out to my retirement. So I was afraid to to be to stick to an ecosystem. So just decided to, okay, I want to switch. I want to learn something completely new. So I switched to learn AWS. And my God, when I started, I was, oh my God, what did I do? And for nearly four years later now, uh, it it is probably the best decision uh, I had, I've done in my career. Sometimes learning something completely new push you out of your comfort zone, but for the best. Most of the time, when you go outside of your comfort zone, it will end up to be something really great. Ooh, well said. I love that. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's it's terrifying at first. <laughs> and some days will be better than others. Uh, but, but yeah, you learn, you grow. Um, yeah, I, I've helped mentor um, folks who did switch careers. And what I try to remind people is, Anybody can code. You know, there's a lot of there's a, there's a lot of fences we build around software engineering, programming, being a developer that imply you need to know math or you need to know physics. You know, as a I mean, as an engineer, right? Like, how how can an engineer do something if they don't know calculus? And I can't tell you if I've ever used physics or calculus <laughs> and writing my code. Uh, so any, anybody can learn to code. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're bad at math or science. Uh, it's, it's almost just like learning it. Well, <laughs> I was about to say, it's like, it's like learning a language. I mean, you are, you're learning your programming language, but then I realized I'm the only one here who doesn't speak multiple languages. <laughs> so, uh, Layla, how how similar is it to say learning C sharp to learning French or learning Spanish or learning Italian? Okay, so the interesting part is okay. I I speak about five languages 
I don't feel like I've ever learned them. So actually, that is a very <laughs> tricky question, question for me. I was just exposed to them from a very young age. So I'm just really lucky. That, that's all there is. Um, I was just lucky to absorb them uh, from a young age. And I never felt like I went through the, the learning curve of learning the sort of language, if you will. Um, but <clears throat> I have done that a little bit more with Italian. And that's where I sort of feel like I'm still <laughs> very lucky because I can just steal away from Spanish because it's so similar. <laughs> uh, but I, I have touched on other programming languages. And one of the things that I feel is that there's always a shared basis that you can sort of draw from. It's, it's not as if you're going to start from zero, because we tend to say that, oh, but I'm starting from zero if I switch stack or if I switch languages. That's never, ever really true. You always have a common foundation on which you're going to start building upon. And once you can sort of match concepts that you already know from the language that you uh, that you know very well, and you can sort of start to map them as like, oh, okay, in, I don't know, whatever other language it is in Java, this is how we do it. And then you know how that's done in C Sharp. And you can make that sort of mental map. It's going to be a lot easier. Another thing that I would sort of like to add to this is, even if you sort of embark on this experiment, right? And you've gone through that, you're a year in, year and a half, whatever it is, six months, and you're like, oh my God, this was the most terrible mistake. <laughs> like, I should not have done this. I need to go back. This is not for me. Even then, I wouldn't consider it as a failure, not ever, because there is so much that in the moment you will not realize that you are bringing back to the sort of community, to the knowledge that you had in that other stack that is going to be useful to you in so many ways that it's, it's, I would see it as a win-win either way. Well said, well said. Um, Francois, what, what about you? Uh, did, did you learn English at an early age or did you have to struggle through it like, <laughs> well, <laughs> like some of us here? English. Uh, I've learned English at school uh, in France. And to be honest, it's not a great experience to be able to really work in, uh, in English as I do today. Uh, then. Um, a few years, when I joined LES, uh, I decided to be intentional on this, um, learning English. Uh, so I've taken some course. And I think for programming language, I, I don't the same. Uh, a few years ago, I tried to learn uh, JavaScript because I was not no good at JavaScript. When, when you listen, people like, we all know JavaScript. No, we don't all know JavaScript. I was very bad at JavaScript. <laughs> so I, dis I decided to take some online course on um, the Udemy platform for me. But you can find uh, many platforms um, to start learning um, a new programming language with beginning course. And I've decided to start from scratch. Like if I didn't, no, at all, all to program. Um, so it was a really good experience, even if, if I was already very skilled with C Sharp. It was a very good experience to start from the very beginning to grab the concept of this programming language, to really grab the differences between my knowledge in C Sharp and um, the differences with JavaScript. And like Leila said, very quickly, I realized that there, there is a lot of shared 
thing between uh, the two language, but also uh, it helped me to to spot the the meaningful difference between between the languages. So that would be my recommendation to probably take a non-line course if you if you already know how to program. Okay, take take a non-online course. Start from zero. Don't try to make if you were already good at. No, start from zero and learn how how to program in this new program with this new programming language, as if you were a beginner. Well said. Yeah, um, as you're both uh, describing your experiences, yeah, something stuck out to me in in my own experience, and I didn't realize how much. I lean on prior knowledge in, in just everyday life too, you know, like uh, if I'm fixing something around the house, uh, it's like, oh yeah, well I did this last time. And so that makes sense that I should do it again this time. And uh, yeah, I didn't realize it, but yeah, we totally do that with language, with programming languages. Like if I, if I see, and, and I don't know Python and I don't know JavaScript, <laughs> but if I see it, I can... I can kind of lean on what I do know and say, oh, that kind of looks like an if statement in C sharp. So that's probably how this works. And this feels like async await uh, in C sharp. So that's probably how this works. And yeah, it's funny how we can, we can, and we do, <laughs> we lean on all that prior experience. Uh, now, Layla, uh, you mentioned there's some really, really cool things that you're working on that we wanted to highlight on the show today. And, uh, which one do you want to start with? Well, there's plenty to choose from. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, when it comes to the community, I've mostly been focusing on, on public speaking and try to sort of share from, from my own experiences. Probably the biggest challenge for me to start there was, um, how do I say this? So basically, when when you're you're building up expertise over multiple and multiple years and the things that you know start to become like common sense for you. And one of the things that I struggled with a lot is this is common sense for me and therefore it is common sense to everyone. <laughs> so it's kind of like taking a distance from that and thinking about even my younger self, like how long did it take for me to understand this specific con concept? Um, how much reading did I have to do for that? How many questions did I ask? Did I need to ask to basically get to the level of understanding where I am today, and try to even you know put myself into that position again, or try to at least it's challenging, and try to say okay, what would I what would I have liked to sort of see um, back then? And I try to do that as much as I can, and I also sort of really listen to questions from the audience to sort of see what people are sort of struggling with. And I let that sort of feed into, okay, what could I talk about next? And that sort of seems to happen organically. So that's also really interesting. Very <clears throat> cool. And so this is a, a talk you're working on, a presentation for an upcoming conference? Yes, I actually have one that uh, is a little bit different because I think most of the talks that I've been doing are uh, pretty technical, architectural, you know, whatever you will. And now I'm actually preparing one that is, I guess, even outside of my own comfort zone, <laughs> because I'm definitely uh, not an expert, although I would say that I've learned a lot through the years, but it's a lot more about how we sort of think critically. Um, because I feel that that's one of the, 
the sort of most needed skills, it's it's only going to increase with, I don't know, things like AI and, and stuff like that, is to sort of apply critical thinking, look at a piece of code and try to figure out whether it makes sense, but also look at all of the offering. Like we already discussed, there's a fire hose of frameworks. It's like, which one do I choose and why? And Because I feel like also as a community, one of the things that we do very well is to provide documentation. How do you use this? And, and things like that. Uh, I feel that one of the angles that I also try to incorporate in my talk is why should you use this? Because that's one of the questions that I ask myself when I look at a sort of piece of new technology. It's like, oh, so many tweets and so many blog posts, but why is this interesting to me? How could I apply this to my work? Is it important to me? And it's honestly a way to keep my sanity, <laughs> filter information as well, uh, to be completely honest. But uh, definitely working, uh, working actually at particular software, they have a very uh, structured way around making decisions that has really changed how, how, I, how I make decisions myself as well. And that's going to be a topic for one of my next talks. Fascinating. Well, without giving away all the secrets, um, <laughs> what are some of the tips that uh, particular uses or does to help with that? Well, it's really about structuring your decision making, because I think especially as engineers, we've, we've been exposed to a bunch of information and we don't always realize it, but we come into a situation and we look into a problem. And first of all, it's, do we really even understand what the problem is? Because we tend to immediately jump into solution mode and throw technology at the problem. But taking a step back and really redefining what the problem is in simple terms, you know, terms that anyone without an engineering background could understand, I think already provides a completely different perspective. So that's usually step one. And then it's about um, taking a little bit of distance from that and say, okay, so if we look at this problem, so what are the diff different ways in which we could solve this? And this is really hard, especially if you already have that, but we should just do this right? And you already have that sort of natural bias uh, because of prior knowledge, right? I mean, uh, it's uh, or prior exposure to techniques and whatever it is. So that does come from somewhere, but it's basically about constantly questioning yourself. Uh, I tend to compare it with acting like a scientist because they are very good at questioning their own assumptions and their own beliefs over and over and over again. And that's, I would say, really the gist of it is to step away from anything you, sh you think we should be doing, but question it and say, what are all of the possible options with which we could solve this problem? And then come up with, you know, actual reasoning that leads to a final decision of, and this is the way we're going to go. <laughs> Not just because I did it this way last time. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh -huh. It, it resonates a lot to me what, what you just said because when when I've joined um, Amazon, um, I've I've learned the working background. Work, sorry, working, working backward method. Yes, and it's in my resources. <laughs> yeah, it it, it it was kind of a blast to me. Just no, 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 no. Don't try to think about the solution first. Let's focus on your customer first. Let, let's really think about, okay, what your customer really needs? What, what are they saying? Okay, what, what, what are they really expressing about their needs? What 
they don't express because sometimes they don't say what they really want or they don't say they don't even know what they really need. You have to understand um, making a lot. And it was a blast to me to make this switch and stop being an engineer and start being a kind of a customer research person. But putting customer research in everything, uh, that's the way we do at, uh, at Amazon. And yeah, completely changed the way I, I think about building software. I also strongly believe that it, in the end, it makes us better engineers. Um, I truly believe that. Um, yeah, definitely. It's also some of the things that I've been reading about. But um, yeah, I it's it it also is a really good way to first of all make sure that you we have because honestly as engineers we also just get excited right there's some new tooling <laughs> and it's like there's a new project new opportunity you're like oh let me just you know i could just use this as a playground too yep. and i feel like i mean we're in an industry where I, we've we've talked about this uh, in in other contexts as well uh, but we're in an industry where i think we're lucky right as as engineers to be in this industry um we have generally speaking very well paid jobs as well um and i think it's we need to also just be responsible honestly at the end of the day and we can't just use a customer project as a playground um and i truly believe that if we can put customer needs as you said francois at the at the forefront and focus on that we could deliver better value which might then, you know, open up the conversation with managers or team leads to actually provide time for playground, actual playground. So, yeah. Well said. And so you, you mentioned um, you're working on something called transactional session in and service bus. Uh, I am, and so how did that come about? Did you, did you follow the same process to create this with? Um, following those same steps that we mentioned earlier? Yes, absolutely. I think uh, all of our major decision-making goes through a sort of structured process like this. But uh, so to give a little bit of context, right? Transactional session is one of the features or one of the recent features that we introduced in, in a service bus. And I was lucky enough to be part of the group that worked on this. And basically what it does is it sort of, maybe I should take a step back and explain what the outbox is, right? So we have a concept which is more, I think, widely known, at least in the messaging community, that is a sort of pattern to try to create cons consistency across message operations and database operations. Because if you sort of consume a message, almost always you're gonna be changing something in a database, you know, because otherwise what are you doing with that message? So there's always something going to be happening and it's almost always going to involve some data changes. Now, the thing is that creating consistency between those two types of separate infrastructure uh, without distributed transactions <laughs> is kind of a challenge. And one of the patterns to sort of battle that is the outbox pattern, which creates sort of consistency across those operations. Because there's basically two things that can go wrong. Uh, if you, let's say that you are handling, you know, consuming a message that's coming off a queue and you want to send another message, for example, publish an event, something happened, and you want to update some data in a database. So for example, you want to set an order to shipped and then publish the order shipped event, for example, right? Uh, the thing is that if you commit the data to your database first 
and then send publish the event if succeeding if the database operation succeeds but then sending that message fails and you're unable to roll back that database transaction then you have data in your data store that is not reflected to the rest of the system because nobody ever received that order published oh uh, sorry order shipped event but if you sort of turn those around and you say you know what i'm just going to send that message first or publish that message first to ensure that the system knows about it, and then I'll go and modify the data, then you might be publishing a message and then later failing to update that information in the database, which then means that you've told the rest of the system that you've shipped this order, but you were unable to reflect that in your data store. That's sort of what we call uh, the, the zombie records and the ghost messages. And that's one of the things that the sort of outbox solves for you. Now, the thing is that we've had this concept in and service bus for years, but it only works in the context of I'm taking a message off a queue and I'm doing those operations. And then you are sort of safe with the outbox, assuming you have that enabled on all of the endpoints in your system. But if you're in the context where you're just in a web controller, there is no incoming message. You're just at the beginning of your sort of business transaction, as I like to call it. You know, this is where you send the initial message that is going to kick off that entire workflow, for example. Then you could still be, you know, making some changes in your database. And we've been telling, you know, users and customers for years, like, don't do that. You know, if you're in the context of a web controller, the only thing you should be doing is sending out that message. But as we were talking about listening to customers, they're telling us, well, you know, I'm in this legacy application and I can't really make that decision. I'm trying to, you know, incorporate messaging step by step, but I can't just go in and rewrite all of my controller methods. And then that's where we started thinking, okay, is there a way that we could sort of bring those same consistency guarantees to basically outside of the scope of an incoming message? Does that make sense? Yeah, I was going to say to to zoom out a little bit, I realized we never introduced particular, we never introduced in service bus. It sounds like in service bus has something to do with databases. So for folks who have never heard of in service bus, what is it and what does it do? <laughs> right. So I would uh, describe, well, we basically build a whole platform, right? But in service bus is a messaging abstraction framework library, if you will. And the idea is that we will try to make it as easy for you to build a message-based system without having to care too much about all of the intricacies of how a messaging system works, uh, but maybe basically make it easy for you to focus on your business code. That's the main goal. And then we also have a bunch of platform tools that are also going to help uh, support run that system in a production environment as well. Got it. Got it. So, so if we're building... Let's see, a system that has multiple inputs, multiple outputs. There's multiple, uh, we'll say, actors uh, in the system that need to know what's going on in service buses, our tool. Is that right? Well, you, you will still need um, a queuing system. Um, so, for example, that could be Azure Service Bus, but it could be AWS uh, SQS, SNS as well. It could be... Uh, there are so many RabbitMQ and, and many options. And the reason I was talking about a database is not because that's our core business, but because we realized that, you know, 
in order to build a system, you're, you're going to need a data store, right? So it's just uh, it's just a small detail that you can't get rid of. <laughs> so that's why we also have a sort of what we call persistence themes, and, and you can plug in whatever data store that you are using. And that could be uh, anything from SQL Server, DynamoDB, Cosmos DB. Um, there's plenty of options that we support there as well. So you basically look at your tech stack. What are you using? And most of the time, you'll find something that matches that. And if not, you should reach out. Got <laughs> <laughs> yeah, So I wanted to circle back. To, you mentioned the outbox pattern. And as you were uh, speaking to it, I, I was specifically thinking about my outbox. You know, if I have if I have an email that's going out and for some reason my email client on my computer can't connect to the email server, um, this email lives in or stays in my outbox and never actually left my machine. Nobody's gotten it yet. Um, and I know I can rely on my email client to retry again later. And sometimes it does, but it still fails. And then, then it yells at me and I get a notification letting me know that, hey, you tried to send this email last week and nobody got it. Uh, what happens um, in... We'll say the the tech world. So if we send that message out and we had that failure, like you mentioned, maybe the database or we couldn't update the database, but we've already sent the message. Uh, what happens then? What's that fail safe to alert the user, to alert the developer that, hey, maybe something's going wrong here? Right. So to zoom into a little bit into the difference between you know the scenario that you uh, suggested and the way that is sort of we implemented the outboxes. What we are basically going to do is say, you want to send messages or publish, doesn't really matter for the sake of this discussion, but you also want to save data. That data store probably has some kind of transactional mechanism. So what we're going to do is we're going to store those messages on that database. So piggyback on that transaction, it will be done in the same transaction. And then in a sort of um, mechanism that is backed up by a fail-safe loop, which I'll get I'll get back later, we're going to try to dispatch those messages. So what happens in the service bus is that there's a sort of automatic recoverability mechanism, actually multiple recoverability mechanisms, depending on how you configure it. And what, basically what we'll do even out of the box without any configuration is that we'll immediately, immediately retry a couple of times. And if that doesn't work, because like you said, the mail server is unavailable or the broker is unavailable or whatever it is, then we will wait for a while, like what we call the delayed retries or a back-off mechanism, if you will. And it will pause for 10 seconds, 20 seconds. And we're basically going to increase that sort of back-off mechanism and say, okay, it didn't work in 10 seconds this time, so maybe let's wait 30. And then sort of build that up. And at some point, we'll say, you know, we've tried this a couple of times. Maybe you should look at this. <laughs> and at that point, we'll basically send that message to the error queue. And yeah, it pops up in, in our tooling if you have that set up or uh, if you're man manually monitoring your error queues and which I wouldn't suggest, <laughs> but <clears throat> yeah, then, then you have to sort of look at that and say, okay, why is this message failing? Uh, is there a piece of infrastructure unavailable? Is there a bug in the system that needs to be fixed? And when that is done, you can just sort of, you know, um, drag it back into the input queue. Simply said. Just to, to, to be sure to to understand, 
uh, because I, I'm learning while, while you you are speaking, so I try to to get uh, what you you're describing. So you you are uh, coupling the, the transaction transaction of the message with the transaction of the database. So if one of one of them, the, the database or all the message fail, the the tr transactional session will fail and will be notified that okay whether the database you couldn't change uh the data in the database or whether we couldn't send the message to notify the rest of the system so both so, will be coupled yes so actually if you look at the documentation that we have about that uh it means that we basically assume that whatever queuing mechanism that you have has higher availability guarantees. Because what I explained is the outbox, the transactional session works a little bit differently. And actually I can share some documentation with a sort of visual graph on how that works um, as well. Um, I think it's the link you shared earlier as well, Brandon, but I'll, I'll post it in here as well. No, that's the other one. But basically it gives you a sort of view of what that would look like. Um, but what is going to happen is we're going to send a message immediately to uh, on that queue. So what we're basically doing is we're assuming that the broker is there. If we can't even reach the broker, then we're immediately tell the user, you know, sorry, we, we, we can't really get anywhere with this. Then we'll uh, commit the database transaction and there's a message sitting on the queue, it's empty. It just has some headers that we can sort of recognize and it will try to process that and say, okay, the messages that we that you as a user intended to send out or publish, those have not been sent out yet. They're stored in your database as sort of pending uh, messages to go out, right? But we'll get that sort of what we call a control message on the queue. And what we're going to do there is check, do we have the data? Like, do we have some pending operations stored in that database that we need to dispatch? And then we'll do that. And there are some sort of uh, fail-safe mechanisms that we've built in there to make sure that we uh, look out for all of the possible things that can go wrong. And actually, that takes me to another interesting story. The way we went about this was super interesting because we used uh, something called TLA Plus for this, which is a kind of model checking mechanism. Um, I don't know if you heard about it. It was completely new to me. <laughs> My mind was sort of blown uh, throughout that whole uh, thing. But basically what it allows you to do is think of the, the, the feature that you're building in this specific context uh, as a sort of model. And what we're trying to do is execute that model independent of the code, independent of any infrastructure that you have set up. And you're just going to, um, yeah, sort of, what's the word? I can't find it. Um, you're just going to sort of fra frame that in a different way. It's, it's super mathematic, actually, since we we're talking about math. This is proof, people, that you don't need to know math because this was completely new to me. It's the first <laughs> sort of mathematical model that I was really exposed to. But um, yeah, that was super interesting. It was a whole different way about thinking about this. But yeah, it was um, really a challenge. It was basically um, introduced by uh, Leslie Lamport, who's known 
quite well known for his work in distributed systems, especially around concurrency distributed systems and those types of problems. And um, yeah, that helped us sort of verify what if the data is not in the database? What if you have your endpoints scaled out? What if there are errors occurring? What if the message doesn't arrive? Or what if uh, the data is not there, but the message arrived? Or what if the message arrives five days later than the data was put into the database? Like all of these edge cases, that would be like impossible <laughs> to write, you know, tests for. It's like, it's, it's too wide. Like all of the possible things that could go wrong, this sort of model checking uh, mechanism was a completely new way to sort of look at this problem. And that's where uh, one of my colleagues, Tomek, uh, did actually a webinar about this uh, as well. And he goes into a lot of detail um, on how to do this. That's exactly the one, thank you. So on how to do this and how to build such a model, how to execute it. And I mean, it still blows my mind. <laughs> I still don't think I fully entirely grasped um, every angle of that, but it was definitely a great learning experience. I love how how perfectly that ties into what we were talking about earlier when we were saying there's there's always more to learn. You'll never be yeah. an expert in everything, and this this is so true because I all the time I lean on people who are way smarter than me that have figured out the math and figured out how to do it and created these frameworks and were able to leverage those and build on top of those. So our stuff works great, <laughs> but uh, like really smart people like your, uh, like you mentioned your coworker Tomek, he's, he's already figured this out. <laughs> yeah. So he can teach us how to do it. We don't have to know the math underneath it, uh, but it helps build better, more resilient systems. And then our boss thinks we're the smartest people yeah. in the world because we did it. <laughs> I, I've used and service bus in, in the past. And I never thought about all this before I was just, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's really easy to use. Yes, that's a good way to abstract my, my messaging. Yeah, that's fine. I never thought about all this complexity when I've used and service bus. That, and uh, that's probably a good um, evidence that, okay, it's, it is really a good developer experience. It is a really good framework to use because it's hide all the complexity to the developer. So that's that's my take. Well, I do believe that. And I'm not saying it because I work there. I used to use in Surface Bus before I worked at Particular. And one of the reasons I joined Particular is because I enjoyed using in Surface Bus. <laughs> so uh, in that regards, I'm their perfect demo developer. That's a good. I'm, I'm not, <laughs> by the way, but I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's it's sort of, yeah, you like a product, you start working on it, and you can sort of think of ways of how to make it even better. That's just super cool. But you're absolutely right. I mean, Tomek and Shimon as well, uh, both of them are, uh, you know, like really in-depth experts when it comes to like the outbox and how that works. And we could basically, yeah, piggyback on their knowledge and sort of learn with them. And that's one of the sort of things that I really appreciate as well about how we work is that it's all super collaborative. There's no sort of, oh, you should know this already. It's like, you know, a very open environment where, you know, any knowledge that you have, any background is welcomed. And any knowledge that you don't have is like, okay, cool, then you can learn something. And um, that brings all the fun back into the work, especially given that 
we realize that we can't know everything anyway, right? So, yeah, I, I love that. Yeah, I love when we can introduce something new to a fellow developer because, yeah, like you said, Layla, it's, it's, we could just be all smug and be like, wow, well, I had to do it the hard way and I had to learn it. Um, but when somebody comes to me and it's like, what, what is this? I don't know about them. Like, oh, you haven't heard about this yet? Ooh, like you're in luck because this is super cool. I can't wait to tell you about it. Uh, and that's, that's where I get my excitement and my passion from is yeah, doing that teaching, that sharing. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, it's, you'll, it'll never stop. <laughs> well, something new is going to come out. Somebody smarter than all of us will make a, uh, improvement to a tool or make a better tool that, uh, will make our lives easier. And we'll get to learn about that in the future. Uh, Layla, we've only got a, a couple minutes left, uh, but there's something else you mentioned, um, to us before the show about open telemetry as a, a project you're passionate about in Absolutely. two minutes or less. Uh, what is it and, and why should we all be using it? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Two minutes. Uh, so, um, the reason I love open telemetry so much is because it, it brings op- observability basically to distributed systems. Uh, it's definitely a project that I'm passionate about because one of the things I really love building message-based systems. I absolutely hate debugging them, like to the <laughs> core. <laughs> that is also what my session uh, at uh, the uh, .NET Enterprise Developer Day will be about. So if you have the opportunity to look at that, definitely join it, and I will take you through horrible experiences of mine. But um, but yeah, I think building distributed systems, which we are confronted with more and more you know, because we're just also using different components more and more different services to build our systems on and mixing and matching, debugging through that is just horrifying. And having something like observability, which brings back the sort of control, if you will, about what is happening in my system and in which order is it happening and what is leading to what and what context basically uh, happened in each of those steps is really, really powerful. Open telemetry also sort of uh, introduces three types of way, uh, three signals that can improve the observability of a given system, which are logging metrics and traces. And Martin will tell you that logs don't exist anymore, but that's a different <laughs> discussion. <laughs> but yeah, definitely, I, I see the value in all of them personally. Um, and yeah, they can basically just bring back that visibility that we give up when we start to decomponentize our systems into individual autonomous components, like we like or we aim to build them, if you will. Yeah, yeah is it? Mar- Mar- oh, yeah, so, sorry, just Martin is uh, in the chat, and if you want to know more about observability and open telemetry, you can watch back um, the show we had uh, two weeks ago with him. Uh, we, we've discussed uh, observability and open <laughs> telemetry for one hour with Martin. So, yeah, you, you, you can catch up on this on the .NET on AWS collection on our Twitter channel. And in case he didn't share it, uh, Michael Hausenblas has a has an open telemetry or an observability newsletter that is definitely uh, really cool. And he shares some really good resources in there if you want to keep up with what's happening in that space. Fantastic. Oh, and I see Martin sharing it in the comments. One. So 011y.news is where you can find that. Uh, Layla, thanks. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I feel like I've, I've learned so much about 
you and, and service bus and uh, just the community in general. Um, for those who want to keep up with you and all the cool stuff you're working on, where can they find you? Well, you can find me both on Twitter and Mastodon at Noctivus. I think Mastodon is at hackyderm.io and LinkedIn just by my full name, Leila Bugria. And feel free to follow or connect and we can continue the conversation. Well, well, thanks again. Thanks so much for joining us. Hopefully we can bring you back for a round two. And thank you for having for, me. Yeah. And thank you for watching. Thanks for joining thank us. You. Don't forget to subscribe to the AWS Twitch channel so you never miss us. We'll be back here on the first and third Mondays of every month. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.